Then we move to John Sanders is our next name on that list. And John Sanders, I tend to like the guy. He seems a little shy in debates. I mean, I watched his debate between himself and James White. And James White is a speaker. He's very charismatic in how he handles himself, whereas John Sanders is more of a thinker. John Sanders is more, I would say, honest and genuine. So when he's talking to... Uh, James White, he'll say, you know, it could be this, but I think it is probably this. Whereas uh, White comes off more confident, and this that confidence wins debates, which is sad that uh, you know the arguments are not what's at the forefront. But John Sanders, it seems to me that he kind of mixed some of this uh, philosophy in with his open theism. Oh, God has to be X Y Z attribute. God has to be omniscient or omnipresent or you know, all these other attributes, and he affirms those, and then he affirms the biblical text afterwards. Yeah, he affirms, you know, omniscience with caveats, you know, for example. Um, but I just want to say, yeah, I watched that same debate, and I think what really struck me the most as well was his humility. You know, James White, like you said, I mean, he's a loud, boisterous kind of guy, and to me that kind of rubs me as arrogant, and I could be wrong, but that's sort of how I picked that up. And there were multiple times when James White was, you know, trying, it looked like, to take uh, John to task. And John was just, you know, kind of very quiet and, and humble. And, you know, and he said, you know, I don't know a couple times, which in a debate um, might look like a faux pas. But I think that uh, that goes a lot way, a long way to establish credibility, you know, with some people, myself included. You know, if, you, if they ask you something and you don't know the answer and you just say, I don't know, I will yeah. respect you a lot more than if you're trying to just hold on to your position at all costs, you know what I mean? Yeah, and from what I remember, uh, those those times where he answered, he doesn't know. Uh, that's where James White would pull out a contradiction between a biblical story and John Sanders' systematic theology. The, right. Those were the gotcha points. Right. And so John Sanders didn't necessarily want to affirm the text in a consistent manner with his other beliefs because that would have undermined his systematic theology. Oh, so he was he was kind of just saying, I don't know, because he didn't want to answer the question? Or? Not that he didn't, he couldn't answer the question, but that, that the question represented an actual contradiction that he would have to answer in some manner. I'd have to go look at the actual debate again and pull out those uh, little instances, but that's what I remember from when I watched the debate. Uh, so he was exposing some uh, some inconsistencies, and John Sanders just really didn't know, huh? Okay. Right. So Sanders, um, I need to read more of his works. Uh, I do like him as an author. I like him as a person. I, I've never met the guy, but I, I hear he lives in Minnesota. Oh, does he? I believe so. Um, he was teaching at a Minnesota college for some time. Yeah, I just think he does let some of his systematic theology in, which shifts him. It's not necessarily a bad thing to let systematic theology in or systematic theology to dictate a text, but it does shift you more towards the dignum dio rather than the biblical critical side. Right. All right. So the next name on the list, I guess you know who this is, W. Scott Taylor. <laughs> yeah. We so, can skip over this one if you want. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Let's skip over. Well, he's on the list because uh, he objected that he wasn't on the list. And uh, so I was like, if you want to be on the list, that's okay. But uh, 
Um, I hope he starts uh, putting out work, like uh, solid work, maybe a book, maybe more blog posts on the issue. I think that'd be good, man. Um, I talked to him a little bit in Messenger and things like that, and um, for about a year and a half now, I've sort of been developing a relationship with him. I, I mean, I really love that dude. He uh, he can come off as abrasive a little bit at times on Facebook, but um, I mean, what strikes me about him is, I mean, he really has a heart for the things of God, you know, and he stresses mm-hmm. the Father heart of God in all of our conversations. Um, you know, he's a little bit older, and he's definitely got some wisdom. I would, like you, I would just echo that. Man, I would love to see him writing more, putting out a book maybe, or some blogs, or, you know, some of his own stuff, um, for sure. You know, I think that he probably, he probably has a lot to offer, and I think he probably knows that, you know. So, I don't know what's holding him back. So, if you're listening to this, get it together, man. Yeah, get it together. Write a book. Give us something. We need something. Yeah. All right. So, he falls under the tradition of open theism that seems to have descended from L.D. McCabe, he's in our historical influences, and Gordon Olson. So Gordon Olson, he seems to be a preacher who was prominent in, I think it's the 50s, 60s, 70s, something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, he seems to have quite a following. And a lot of open theists um, that we discuss uh, open theism with on the Facebook page, a lot of them seem to descend from Gordon Olson. I've, I had never heard of Gordon Olson uh, previously to maybe three or four years ago. I never heard the name. Is that a different Gordon Olson that writes for Papias? Right? Um, this is a dead Gordon Olson, one who's okay. one who, uh, died. Yeah, I'm not too familiar with him. Um, yeah, I, I would say that that's kind of like almost in the Adam Clark, John Wesley, Arminian tradition. You know, it, it seems like there was a uh, a move in some circles of Arminianism sort of towards what's called term divine nescience, which is Messiaans just means not knowing, pretty much, as opposed to prescience. Right. Um, you know, and Adam Clark is, I think, probably the uh, the catalyst, if not the standout figure in the divine Messiaans um, Armenian tradition. You know, he was a Methodist. I think he lived a little bit after John Wesley, if, if I'm correct. And uh, I think that those sort of um, that Armenian tradition sort of carried over into open theism open theism, so sort of like a river or a stream flowing into a bigger body of open theism. So it looks like uh, Adam Clark lived at, uh, or was probably prominent in the beginning of the 1800s, and that's about the same time that uh, McCabe also was writing. And McCabe's got a couple books out, and we link to them for free under the resources page of God is Open. And those books seem to be pretty solid books. Yeah. I know, uh, I think Tom... Corbins, I believe is how you pronounce his last name. I think he talks about McCabe a lot, and uh, I know that uh, W does as well. So. Yeah, the, McCabe does have good books, and it seems that McCabe was a major influence on Gordon Olson, and Gordon Olson spawned a generation of open theism uh, coming out of uh, the Midwest. I think he was a preacher in the Ohio-type region, and so from him descended the W. Scott Taylors of the world, the Jesse Morrells of the world, and uh, just just a large segment of uh, open theism. H. Roy Elseth might have also came from that branch. I'm not quite sure on that. So Jesse Morell's our next name on the list. Do you have any familiarity with him? Um, yes, some. Um, I think that his work on the early church and free will is excellent. You know, his open view of the future, I believe, is 
more in line with Boyd's, where it's a Bible and omniscience, if I'm not mistaken. But he seems like a pretty solid dude as well. Um, you know, I don't agree with all of his doctrine or everything he says, you know, but as far as just his open theology, um, I think he's definitely very solid there. Yeah, I, I've uh, I spent a lot of time watching his street peak preaching videos. Jesse Morrell is a full-time street preacher, and he's funded by donations. And what he does is he goes to these college campuses around the United States, and he films himself debating with college students. And it's usually pretty funny because usually he's the, the clear winner in all of these debates. And they get frustrated, and he uses humor, and he uses jokes, and he riles them up. And uh, it's, it's an entertaining experience, and that's how he draws his crowds. But he is an open theist. And so when people come at him with these Calvinistic arguments, you know, fatalism and uh, various contradictions between these different, what we'd say, classical attributes of God, he actually has the open theist answers, which confuses them because they've never heard right. this stuff before. Yeah, I think that that's um, it's really powerful, you know. Um, just evangelism-wise, the open view has so much to offer, you know, for all the serious questions that people ask, you know, like, why is there evil? Why am I responsible? You know, is is everything just faded? Because you have, you know, Reformed theology is, is gaining in steam and has been for a long time, you know, and that's the, uh, I would say that the body of most Christianity, at least in the United States, is, is Reformed theology, you know, and the open view is in direct contrast to that. And beneficially for us, you know, we also have the scriptures on our side. So I think that it's great when you have someone like Jesse Morrell, who's out there vocally on college campuses with the young people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, vocally giving them an option that's grounded in biblical truth that they, they're just not heard. You know, you don't hear open theology is not really espoused on the podiums today. You know, and I will say with him also, whenever anybody asks me about open theism, I direct them to his YouTube video entitled Why I'm an Open Theist. I think it's like an hour and 20 minutes. It's very concise, very to the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's very, it's it's a very good source if you want to know what open theism is. Right. Know, in, a, in a pretty short amount of time. It's in everything, and that's great. But, you know, if you just want like a general, quick, little, you know, accurate and relatively dense overview, I think that's probably the place to start. Right. And that video, along with uh, certain teachings of his, is why he's not the far right on that biblical, textual, critical spectrum. Um, Because in those videos and in his street preaching, he'll often allude to these overarching attributes or philosophical ideas about God. In one video I was watching of him street preaching, someone tried to argue with him about omniscience. And instead of... uh, uh, you know, disclaiming that word as not a biblical word, not in the Bible, not necessarily an attribute, especially in the classical sense. He tries to redefine the attribute um, that God knows, all things knowable, and you know, something like that. And when when people are dealing with that, they're dealing more with the dignum dio theology rather than necessarily a biblical theology. A biblical way to address that would probably be to pull out some various texts and say, here's the biblical idea of God's knowledge. There's there's different ways to take these verses, and one such way is this omniscience that's redefined. That's That would be more of a biblical critical method rather than saying, this is a new definition of omniscience, and this fits what I'm trying to tell you. Yeah, I was caught up for a while trying to redefine that word, as I do with trying to stress the actual definition of the word sovereignty, which some people just cannot seem to comprehend. 
Um, but I've sort of abandoned that approach. You know, I think I think Jesse does a good job in that video. He says, you know, it's more accurate not to say that God knows everything, but to say that God knows everything as it is. So, you know, when I talk to people at work and things like that, if, if they ask me that sort of question, I will go a little philosophical on them. But that's because most people don't have any biblical background, you know, and I don't have a Bible with me at work. Right. So, you know, it it could be beneficial. I think I think it's important maybe to say that being a philosophic, being to the left is not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, you know? definitely not. It's not necessarily a great thing either. You know, I mean, we can all take from one area, you know, for use for a time or, or something like that. You know, everything has its purpose and its benefits. So it's beneficial to be more well-rounded in probably all the arguments or to specialize in maybe just one. You know, that's just kind of my approach, but... Yep, you definitely um, will reach more people adding a little right. bit of philosophical argumentation because people, if you're talking to them straight textual criticism, they're going to feel like they're in necessarily a classroom and they're just going to turn off to the technicalities of it all. Yeah, I mean, you have, you know, most Christians don't want to get into textual criticism, at least to the point of asking themselves, you know, the serious questions. So I think, like you said, it's important to... You know, maybe at times, you know, sort of defer to a more philosophical approach, but always with the intent of bringing them back to the tech, you know. So I think that that's definitely probably the way to go. The next name we have on the list is uh, H. Roy Elseth. Elseth uh, was revolutionary to me as a kid when I was, you know, probably less than 12 years old or something like that. I read his book, Did God Know? And that book actually spurred a lot of thoughts in my mind, a lot of how I understood the Bible, and it was it was revolutionary, and, and it gave me a very solid foundation in open theism, where which I, I've never read a book quite like that before. So you had said uh, that you were not you had have not read that book yet. No, I haven't. So sadly, I've never I've never heard of it either actually until right now. But um, I'll add it to the list for sure. Yeah, it, it's a great book. It's uh, out of print which is uh, sad, but uh, when I had a discussion with Jesse Morrell, he was working on getting it back into print, which would actually be pretty amazing if he could do that. So the next name we got on the list is Michael Saya, and uh, I love Michael Saya. He's got so many good works out there. Um, Why Did Innocents Suffer? Does God Know the Future? And he's just an excellent uh, author, and he's a great guy, and you'll see him from time to time talk on the God is Open Facebook page in response to various threads. And it's just great to have him there and participating in our, you know, group. Yeah, he's uh, he's definitely on the ball. I've, I've not read um, any of his works. Again, I have, I have probably, I don't know, 100 books on my Amazon wish list, and there's a couple of works by him on there. Um, but every time that I've, you know, read anything that he had to say on the Facebook page or uh, I think I dialogued with him maybe once or twice about something, um, he seems, you know, pretty genuine, pretty nice, and uh, pretty pretty well-rounded as well. Yeah, the reason why he's to the left of, I would say, Bob Enyart is in his book, Does God Know the Future? Michael Say, he's he's almost all the way to the right on the biblical spectrum, but I didn't put him all the way flush to the right. Because, like, in his book, he starts with the arguments about who God is and, and talks about these philosophical concepts, and th- those are his opening arguments. Um, He he does really good with the text, with the rest of the book. He goes through the text in detail, talking about what the text means and, you know, what we can get from the text. 
But his opening argument seemed to me more of a dignum dio type argument, setting up some sort of systematic theology by which the rest of the text is interpreted. Yeah, you kind of see that also in uh, Why Do the Innocent Suffer, where he talks about uh, the problem of evil in the world. And the problem of evil in the world, he kind of reinterprets in this light of God is omniscient, and God is omnipresent, and God is omnipotent, which aren't necessarily characteristics of the Bible, not, not in the Greek classical sense. But then he wonders, you know, what causes evil? And his solution to some of them, like in Job, when he writes mm-hmm. about Job, uh, the person who's doing the evil, that's Satan. And that evil can be attributed to Satan. Whereas a lot of textual critical scholars, they say that Satan in that text is an agent of God, which uh, he doesn't necessarily discuss in his text. I don't know if he was familiar with that position when he wrote that text. But there are other texts in the Bible in which Satan is acting in some sort of capacity for God. You take uh, the instance when David is numbering the people. You take uh, God confronting the false prophet Balaam. And in those texts, Satan is working for God. He's an agent in God's court. This is not to be confused with the New Testament concept of the devil. If you read works by Michael Heisner, he talks about how Satan developed from an adversarial uh, court member in God's court into um, a personification of anyone who poses God. And he says that's how the devil in the New Testament took on the name Satan. That just blew my mind a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I think too. You know, you have the lying spirit going to King Ahab. Um, I'm curious though. So he sort of, with the problem of evil, he sort of just disavowed God from any responsibility because God is not the one uh, actually, actually uh, committing or inciting any of it. Yeah. So you know, in the case of, of Job, responsibility off on an agent. Right. And in the case of Job, what's God doing? According to Michael Saya in his book, Why Do the Innocent Suffer? It's because God's in this heavenly court with all the angels and Satan's challenging his authority. And so God is allowing this test to happen to put Satan in his place, to embarrass him in front of the other angels that are present, who are wondering who's going to win necessarily this this uh, bet. And so well, Michael Sam wouldn't use the word bet, or he wouldn't use the word wager. But that the whole heavenly scene is a power play between Satan and God. And this is in his Why Did the Innocent Suffer, which is a great book. And I suggest everyone read it at least once. It's it's good, it's insightful, and he does care about the text very seriously. And he does present a probable and plausible explanation of the Job text. So next on the list is Bob Enyart, and I might have some personal bias because Bob (laughs) Enyart, yeah, Bob Enyart is a friend of mine. And if if we look down under our historical influences, we have Bob Hill. Now, Bob Hill was, he converted to open theism through reading the works of William Beterwolf. William Beterwolf wrote a book on prayer, And uh, in that, he challenges the traditional notions of omniscience. And Bob Hill read this book, and he started thinking about it. And Bob Hill is a biblical scholar. He's a Greek scholar. He's got a lot of writings out there that aren't necessarily published on the Internet anymore. But I do have digital copies of all of them through a friend. But Bob Hill, he was a friend of my dad's. And uh, I went to his house as a kid, and I always jumped on his trampoline and got stung by bees, which had a nest under there. 
you know, that sort of thing. So I kind of fall under the same historical progression as Bob Enyart. Whereas Bob Hill, he not only trained Bob Enyart, but Bob Hill trained my dad in Greek lessons. The funny story there is my dad uh, moved to Colorado and he went to this uh, biblical uh, this biblical bookstore. And he asked the lady at the counter, he's like, hey, I'm looking for uh, Greek lessons. And she's like, well, my dad teaches Greek. And he's like, well, how much does that cost? And she's like, well, it's free. And he's like, that's my price. <laughs> right? Yeah, so my dad came from this uh, Calvinist background, and it wasn't until Bob Hill and and many angry debates later that he became an open theist. And it's through this tradition of the Bob Hill Denver Bible Church or Derby Bible Church or Grace Family Fellowship tradition that's coming through Colorado. Yeah, I like uh, I like Bob's place on the chart. I mean, you could move him further right if you wanted to, as far as I'm concerned. Um, as long as we're only, you know, like I said, discussing his open view. Um, you know, he is a hyper-dispensationalist, which I am not, but I think it's important, you know, not to take that into account as we discuss. But, um, you know, he is fully committed, as far as I can tell, to the text itself. His philosophical arguments, for example, in the James White debate, I can't really recall one, to be honest with you, off the top of my head. Well, he was um, uh, trying to get James White on um, James White's idea of the hypostatic union, which is not necessarily... Uh, biblical point, but kind of, uh, you know, a philosophy that people kind of built on top of the New Testament text about Jesus. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, he was sort of taking him to task on the one nature, two natures, and how that didn't constitute change in the Godhead. I think to the point where R.C. Spoel the next day had to come out and make a statement to, right. the effect that, to the effect that James White didn't really mean what he just said. And James White said, yeah, I never said that. So, yeah. I, mean, I don't know. But other than that, yeah, now that you bring that to memory, I can't, I mean, he's fully committed to the text as far as I can tell. Right. Um, my my yeah. one criticism of him is sometimes he'll use inerrancy in uh, conjunction with a systematic theology idea to kind of review a text. So okay. if you come to a text and you say, this is true, it won't be, it's not true because look at the text and this is more probable explanation. It's sometimes it's, based on this overriding hermeneutic. And if you read his debate with, there's a D. James Kennedy theologian, he, he introduces uh, Jonah hermeneutic, and where all the texts of God are, are to be read in light of uh, that specific hermeneutic. Which is, it, of course, with all these people we're talking about, that's not necessarily invalid, but it does move you more towards the dignum dio rather than the textual critical. Right. So the last name on the list is myself. I get to put myself. Uh, yeah. Can I, I, roast, can I roast you here a little bit? Yeah, you can roast me uh, any way you want. I put myself there because I blog for Open Theism. Uh, now I do uh, podcasts for Open Theism. I run a group for Open Theism. I have a lot of high-ranking Open Theism articles on my other blog. Reality is not optional. And those rank fairly high. I, I don't put those uh, articles on the God is Open website because not all of them's kosher, open theist, you know, average open theist okay. beliefs. So people, if I just put all my own stuff here, people would get this warped view of what open theism is. So myself is that uh, inaccurate uh, portrayal? No, I mean, especially not in uh, relation to the other people on the list. Um, you know, if I try to remove myself from, you know, any personal bias, maybe, because, I mean, I really love Greg Boyd a lot as a teacher and everything, 
you know, so I would want to try to push them more to the right, I think. But as far as, you know, you being related to all those other people, I would say you and Enyard are probably close to the same as far as your commitment to the text itself and not necessarily drawing from philosophical arguments and definitely not drawing uh, from a different deal of philosophy. Because, I mean, like, you you deny omniscience even, to the, don't you, correct? Right. Um, you get a text like Genesis 18 where God, this is Yahweh talking, he has to go and see um, what's happening in Sodom. And so... In that text, it doesn't look like he necessarily had present or past knowledge. And a good way to reconcile this with other texts, if people point to a different proof text somewhere else in the Bible and says, you know, it says here that God knows everything. And you say, well, either that could be, you know, just a generality, just how people talk. People talk in hyperbole all the time. Oh, this guy's good, or this guy knows everything. And usually it's just, he knows really a lot. Um, right. So that's one way to do it. Another way to say, you know what, what happens if uh, God didn't know everything, but then God decided he wanted to know everything, you know, could he do that if he wanted? You know, that's another way to deal with it. People try to discount change, and they do that because of dignum dio theology. They think that God has these specific attributes, and those attributes are inherent in his nature. And that's the definition of dignum dio theology. Whereas uh, in textual cri textual criticism, you have to kind of look to see what attributes are there, and then afterwards, and only afterwards, decide if you could make the text agree in some fashion or fit those texts together. Yeah, and generally speaking, you know, when we're talking about dignity, we're talking about omniscience, omnipresence, immutability, passability, you know, the classical, if you want, um, attributes that are affirmed by, you know, all of Reformed theology, Right. All, if not most, if not all of Arminian theology, and those words are not found in the Bible, you know, anywhere. Right, um, but but uh, in open theism as well, dignum dio theology applies to God is love, where people try to right. interpret God in light of love, and that actually is in the Bible. It says God is love to the extent that that's a metaphysical statement versus a generality, a, a general attribute or general description. That's up for debate. And uh, the text needs to be examined to figure out with what weight the text itself places on that attribute. I mean, it also says, you know, our God is a consuming fire. You know, is he a literal fire? Is that some sort of metaphor for, you know, so definitely, um, you know, we have to let the text say what it's going to say. And that's done, I think, by placing everything in its proper context, its proper historical context. You know, understanding is this a literal statement? Is this some sort of metaphor? Is this, you know analogy, you know, what's the overarching idea that's trying to be uh, expressed by the author, you know, how does that work? So yeah, I, I, I try to take in the chapter of uh, the book that I sent you, my draft book, I, I dedicate an entire chapter to reading comprehension, talking about what are metaphors, how are metaphors used, what's personification, to what extent we can expect anthropomorphism to be a valid and useful concept. And I try to talk about intellectual integrity and trying to look for variances and, you know, determine probabilities of what the text actually says. Right. And that's that's a difficult thing to do, I think. You know, we all have presuppositions before we get to the text. And one of those presuppositions, I would say for just about everybody, is that, you know, God is omniscient. You know, you don't you don't even have to go to church to be taught that. You know what I mean? So I think that it's important um, at some point, you know, we have to question what exactly are our presuppositions. You know, and the dignity of fallacy, you know, 
God is a, therefore the text must be saying this, is probably um, the foundation for a lot of theology. You know, I would say probably 90% of theology that's out there, if you're reading books, listening to people, whatever, it always starts with, you know, God is a, therefore be. Right. Um, and it's not, the text says God is a, therefore be. It is, you know, God is a, therefore be. And even with pastoral concerns, you know, why did my husband leave me? Well, God knows everything, so there must be a reason for that. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that, that Digman Dio is not only, you know, a systematic theology error to a degree, but it, it can also reach into pastoral concerns, just everyday conversation, um, evangelism, you know, all that stuff. So yeah. and it's, it's important, I think, to to understand what our presuppositions are and challenge them from time to time, you know, because the more we challenge our presuppositions, um, the more that which is true is going to get strengthened, and if we allow it, that which is faulty is just going to fall away, you know, and, and new truth and greater truth and more revelation can come in and take its place. I definitely That's- agree. So we're probably running a little short on time, so we'll just kind of cut to just an overview of couple issues that can map anywhere on the spectrum that, you know, it doesn't really correlate with philosophical or biblical theology. As you okay. said before, dispensationalism, I know that's contentious in many circles, and they, they could rate anywhere on this chart, faith right. alone or work salvation. You got Jesse Morrell, who is big work salvation type of guy, um, perfection, that we could obtain perfection in this life. And then you got the Bob Enyarts of the world, which are total faith alone, works aren't required at all. And I would say they're both at the far biblical end of the spectrum. And uh, Enyart uh, espouses dispensationalism, and uh, Morel um, espouses something more of a covenant vibe. Uh, post-trib, pre-trib, amillennialism, you know, that sort of stuff, it doesn't factor anywhere. I'd say myself, I'm an amillennialist. Bob Enyart, he, he's a pre-trib rapture type of guy, and you know, it just it doesn't matter. It doesn't factor into open theism whatsoever. Is that your understanding? Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know that, you know, pre-mill, post-mill, all-millennial, pre-trib, post-trib, pre-wrath, rapture, I don't know that any of that stuff maps anywhere on any spectrum other than an eschatology chart, to be right. honest with you. The last um, thing I put is left and right-wing politics. The biblical open theists, they tend to be right-wing uh, politics, less government types, but that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. I mean, that might also be just part of being a rational human being, though. <laughs> right. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah, libertarians. I know Greg Boyd, self-expressed uh, uh, anarchist, a self-defined anarchist, which he basically says that God is our king and government shouldn't be necessarily involved and we could live in an anarchist state. And he ranks pretty much towards the middle of the spectrum. Yeah, I would say that, yeah, that's probably about right um, as far as the spectrum goes. Unless you, I mean, I don't know, Christian anarchy might be way right. You know, if you have socialism on the left, I think that the, you know, the pretty much abolition of all government would be all the way to the right. But, well, I mean, on a political spectrum, not on the philosophical right, but on, biblical. <laughs> right. But on the open, on the chart that we're talking about, yeah, for sure, definitely in the middle. I mean, that could go either way, really. Yeah, it, um, it doesn't map anywhere. I think that atonement views, too, without any bias towards, you know, penal substitutionary atonement, which I kind of can't stand. You know, those could probably match it, map anywhere on the spectrum as well, I would think. Right. 
So uh, thanks for talking to me today, and thanks for uh, going through this spectrum with me. If you would like any names added to the chart, if you think anyone should be shifted, I mean, we could have further conversations about this. We could have uh, conversations on the, the Facebook God is Open group. We could have conversations even on the What is Open Theism page. I know some people take the different names to task, and we'll try to put in philosophical, I'll explain that that's the dignum dio approach and the biblical is the textual critical approach. And hopefully that could, you know, avert some of the criticisms of terminology because some people kind of get uptight when they're called not biblical or some people get uptight if they're called philosophical or, or if they're shift towards philosophical away from the biblical. And that's not our goal with this chart. Our goal is to just kind of build a, a spectrum between approaches to the Bible. Right. And I think it's good that, you know, um, we were able to have this conversation and sort of lay out what the metrics were for you know, why why everyone is where they are, you know, for sure. It was a pleasure, absolutely. All right, thank you. I was made to find you. I was made just for-